how's things been with the race so far? Or things started? <laughs> uh, it's it's there's no dull moments. I'll say that um, it's been very busy. Uh, the last week, especially, has been incredibly hectic. Um, so it's it's. Uh, it's it's a very different kind of campaign. I full full disclosure, I did run in the last provincial election, uh, and so I'm not a, a newbie to things political by any stretch of the imagination. And the the guidebook, I'll go ahead and use that controversial word right now, uh, for campaigning in the in the provincial election is very very different uh, than than what we have in front of us right now, uh, because with uh, with COVID and with the, the restrictions, uh, it's it's a whole different different kettle of fish. Do you believe that we should have waited for the guidebook to be reviewed again with the new council, or do you believe they should have pushed it through now? Uh, well, well, if we're going to jump right into it, cool. Um, <laughs> I here's here's what my thing is with it i think that the what people have done with the guidebook is is turned it into a political football that it didn't need to be uh i think that that a lot of the the arguments that we're hearing about oh this was sprung on us if you take a look at the history of the consultation it goes back uh years and years and years and years this is not a not a new project by any stretch of the imagination and i would argue that for those who are running in the election that are trying to turn it into something that it, i don't believe that it is um perhaps they should have been paying more attention to municipal politics before they decided to run in municipal politics but that's just me um so i think that the the the, the fundamental principles of the guidebook i think are, are desperately needed for calgary um, the, it is not a revolutionary idea that we have a very real problem in the city with a major infrastructure deficit, particularly when we're talking about the, the communities that are sort of on the outside hub of the city. Uh, we certainly see this in Ward 3 in a variety of ways. And as long as we keep trying to fulfill the tax base by continuing to build and continuing to build and continuing to build, we're never going to address that infrastructure deficit. So I think that it's only, it only makes sense and it's only the responsible thing to start to have conversations about what areas can we look to increase densification um, without compromising the, the community. So if you take a look at what the, the guidebook is actually suggesting, what it's talking about is increasing density in areas where there's huge opportunity for that, but most importantly, where the, the homes and the buildings have reached their end of life. So if, if, if we have three houses on a city block uh, near the downtown core that are decrepit, uh, it makes a lot of sense to, rather than just build another single home infill, uh, let's see if we can maybe find ways to increase the, the densification of, of that area. And one of the other things that I'll just jump on right away is one of the, the big concerns that people have expressed about, um, well, gosh, what if I don't want that new thing built? Uh, what if I what if I don't want somebody to build an apartment building? It's fascinating to me that it's the same people who are lighting their hairs on fire about the guidebook are the same ones that also tried to, to turn that unfortunate situation with the Dairy Queen into a political football, because the exact same mechanisms that exist that are causing problems for the owners of the Dairy Queen are the ones that will prevent uh, huge buildings going in without any community consultation. Sorry, just to let the listeners know, 
what exactly is your ward and the communities that you're hoping to take care of? Uh, it's Ward 3. Yeah. Uh, there's quite a few communities inside of the Ward 3. Uh, and there's some newer communities that are going to be built to the north end of the Ward 3. Um, but to, to paint things with an extremely broad brush, it's the communities of Northern Hills. So I don't have to list off 16 communities for your poor audience. Uh, it's the communities of Northern Hills, Country Hills, uh, and then pretty much uh, McEwen, Sandstone, uh, and then North, Hidden Valley, North. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty diverse uh, community, uh, and a pretty diverse demographic, certainly. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, and it's been my home for 13 years now. So are you from Calgary originally? I'm not, uh, it seems like that's the, the theme with pretty much everybody who's running in this election, but I think it speaks to, to Calgary's, uh, growth, uh, and it's, it's, it's some of its biggest strengths. I was born uh, in Edmonton. Uh, please don't hold it against me. Uh, I lived in a small town up north called Fairview, uh, which is north of Grand Prairie. Shout out to Jordan Peterson. He's from there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we, I moved to Calgary when I was, I think, 11. Uh, and I've lived here ever since. And I'm definitely not 11 anymore. Thanks. <laughs> nice. So you believe that the city should densify versus spread itself out, eh? Yeah, and I think that, I mean, the, the, the evidence of that is incontroversial as far as I'm concerned. Um, the, and again, I, I look at the, when I talk to the, the residents of Ward 3, uh, the biggest concerns that they have are directly related by and large uh, to the longest standing concerns are directly but rated by and large to the, the infrastructure deficit that we have here. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into the green line at some point, uh, but that's a, that's a huge big part of the conversation that's happening up here in Ward 3. Um, I'm thrilled that we finally are seeing actual progress on the, the North Central High School that we've been waiting for for a very long time. Uh, I, I attended many rallies uh, to try to get that thing built. I advocated uh, to get it built. Uh, and it was actually part of my, my provincial campaign because that's how strongly I feel about making sure that there's a high school that's accessible up here. Um, but that's another prime example. When that high school opens, it's going to be at capacity because that's how far we are uh, in regards to the, the infrastructure deficit that we're facing. Um, those are just two examples. I could, I could go on. Why is it like pulling teeth to get things done or see an execution? We're so good at planning. We're so good at strategy and, and pondering away, but we're never good at actually taking action. I mean, like you said about the green line, you can talk about that, the green line, um, the school you're talking about, the arena. I mean, what's happening in our city? And why can't we make things happen? Honestly, I think a big part of the problem that we have is, and, and this is a, a big part of the theme of my campaign. Um, one of the biggest problems that we have, I would argue at all levels of government right now, is there is a huge disconnect and a, a schism of trust between the voters and the, the elected officials and the people who are running for elected office. Um, I think one of the biggest reasons why we've seen a lot of the dysfunction that we've seen at City Hall, excuse me, is because there's 
an overwhelming number of uh, politicians and elected officials who are more concerned with the the theater of governance rather than the actual work of governance. Um, I think it's really important to realize that effectively what city council is, is a, a board of directors, much like we would see for any charitable organization or any sort of, uh, I mean, really any corporation. Um, and the, the challenge with this particular board of directors is that because we're talking about elected roles, the all too often it seems like people are putting, well, how can I turn this issue into a way that's going to get me some free media and get me some attention, as opposed to what's the best thing for, for my constituents, what's the best thing for Calgary? Um, and I think that's a big part of the reason why we we see so many stumbling blocks. I mean, with the the green line, it's a little bit more complicated because there's multiple levels of government involved. But fundamentally, I think that there's no question that the the biggest reason why the green line was paused was because the provincial government uh, wanted to have a little bit of theater. Um, and unfortunately, it's going to end up costing Calgarians and that project in the long run, because one of the things that we've seen is the cost of materials during the last year plus of COVID has gone up exponentially. So if we had just heard, holy. Yeah. If we'd pulled the trigger on this thing when we, we said we were going to, as opposed, and, and not had other people looking for their theater getting in the way then not only would we have shovels in the ground and uh, we, we could have acquired those materials at a lower rate, but I think most importantly, we're talking about a boatload of jobs. Uh, and with the economic downturn that Calgary has been experiencing and with the, the impact of COVID, having jobs available for, for trades and having jobs available for engineers and having jobs available, all of the different types of jobs that would be available with that project, those are now in limbo. And this, I, I am hard pressed to imagine uh, a worse time in the history of, I would argue, not only Calgary, not only Alberta, but Canada for us to be leaving those jobs on the table. What are your thoughts on the rise of property taxes? Well, the, the, the tax problem, I think it's been discussed <laughs> ad nauseum. Uh, so I don't want to wade too far into the minutia, but, but fundamentally the problem that we have is Calgary, Calgary's tax base was inappropriately uh, distributed to businesses as opposed to residential properties for, for a very long time. And we did have the, the economic strength to be able to do that for a very long time because there was, there was so much action going on in the core and in Alberta. Um, I think one of the, the, the things that we've been forced to realize is with that, um, when we started to experience the downturn and when companies started to, to relocate, we didn't have a plan B. And so we were facing massive shortages in, in the budget. And to the current council's credit, they, I think they did a good job of, of finding a lot of opportunities for savings. Um, they, they've continued that work. Um, so I think that, that that goes a long way to helping. Um, I absolutely do not want to see an increase in residential property taxes. Uh, fundamentally, one of the things that, that I believe is we have to restore Calgary's status as a place where people want to live and work. 
we have to do that. That's that's going to be a critical component of our economic recovery. Uh, and I don't see instability or unpredictability in property taxes contributing in any way positive to that. The conversation that I would like to have is right now when we're talking about the revenues that the, the city collects, we're talking about the reality that 40% of the revenues that the city collects gets sent to the province. And I, I think that we are living through some exceptional times. Um, I think Calgary in particular has been hard hit by those exceptional times because we've not only had the, the double punch of COVID, but we've also had the underlying economic downturn in oil and gas. Um, I think that it's now is the time to start to have a conversation with the province of maybe we need to, to revisit that formula for a couple of years uh, and see where we are. Because fundamentally, if Calgary does not recover economically, the province doesn't. Uh, and so I think the province has a vested interest and a responsibility to have that conversation um, so that we can stabilize the situation in Calgary. I mean, it's it's not unprecedented. We, we certainly saw the feds do it in regards to programs to assist small businesses, medium businesses, even CERB. They recognize that we are living through some exceptional times and we have to respond to it in an exceptional manner. Uh, and I think that it's that's that's the conversation that I want to have because I don't want to be scaring further investment away. And I don't want to see the city make cuts that are going to drive people away. I mean, we take a look at what the companies that have relocated to Calgary have cited as the reasons why they're coming to Calgary. And if we negatively impact any of those things, or if we add additional negative factors to that equation, not only do we risk losing them, like we've lost other ones, but we certainly put ourselves in a position where it's going to be difficult to attract additional business. What are your thoughts on downtown Calgary's new strategy plan that was showcased last week? Well, there's some sticker shock for sure, um, but I think that it's necessary. Uh, the The reality is is that if we're going to have a long term plan for Calgary, so I would refer you back to the principles that exist in the in the guidebook. Um, we also have to be able to support that. So we need to invest. I mean, the way that I would, I would sort of describe Calgary right now is it's, a, it's very much a unique fixer-up opportunity. Um, so if we put some investment into the city, um, that's where we stand to, to see some major, major economic gain. Uh, I, I love the idea of taking some of the, the buildings that are appropriate for turning into residential. Um, I love that idea. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, there's a lot of different investments that we can make into the downtown core that are going to attract people to uh, live and work here. Sure. Mental health's at an all-time high. Substance abuse is on the rise. Drugs, alcohol. There are some things that you'll do if you're chosen as the counselor of your ward and for Calgarians. Well, I think it's important to realize that any given counselor is only one vote on that board of directors. Uh, and so when and it matters, one ma vote matters. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that one voice can actually provide some much leaded leadership leadership on these issues. Here's here's what my biggest frustration with a lot of those issues are. We talk about them like they're personal failings and they're not. 
we talk about them like it's simply a choice that people could make. Um, I work professionally as a, as a paramedic, and I can tell you from firsthand experience that the things that people experience when they try to get clean, um, if they're not supported, not only can they be really, really horrifying, they can be fatal. And so if we, and, and the greater conversation when we're talking about mental health and addictions, particularly addictions, is when we're talking about addictions, we're talking about universally people who are self-medicating some form of trauma. The number of people that I run into who worked in the oil patch, who received an injury in the oil patch, uh, and then were prescribed medications by their physician 15, 20 years ago when OxyContin was introduced and everybody's like, ah, it's not addictive, it'll be fine, uh, and who are now hardcore opiate addicts because of that. Uh, these are people who, who are the backbone of, of our province. And to oversimplify what they're dealing with is, is disingenuous. Uh, by the same token, I've never not once um, gone to, I, with my work as a paramedic, sometimes I get to do presentations at schools. And one of the things that I like to do is ask those kids, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it's, universally, it's, it's always firefighter and cop before they get to paramedic. I don't know why, uh, but uh, <laughs> um, I've never not once had a kid say, I want to be a homeless drug addict, uh, rough sleeping uh, and thinking about what I'm going to have to do to get my next fix. Um, that's not something that anybody consciously goes, that's what I want to do today. Uh, there is always underlying trauma. Uh, there's These are coping mechanisms that are unhealthy. There's no question about that. But if we don't address the underlying trauma and the reasons for those addictions to exist, and we just say, ah, just, just do better, um, we're not going to address the problem at all. Uh, so one of the big things that I would like to, to do is to see the city of Calgary work much more aggressively with the people who know about the impacts of, and I'm going to call it houselessness because the, the experts that I've spoken to who not only work with the houseless community, but have lived experience in that, um, have been very clear that that's the word that I should be using. So I'm trying really hard to do that. Um, but when we're talking about people who are experiencing houselessness, the first step has to be a safe place to be. Um, we do a very poor job of that. We, we do a pretty good job of warehousing people. Um, but we have not been nearly as creative with uh, making sure that people have safe places to call home uh, at all. Uh, there's some great initiatives that have happened uh, over in the, the 17th Ave area. There's the, the miniature houses that have been built for, for veterans, and those are incredibly successful. And it's worth noting that a lot of the veterans that moved into those houses were veterans who served this country who were experiencing houselessness. So why we can't expand on programs like that is a, is a complete mystery to me, but it's definitely something that I'll be strongly advocating for, because the first step in getting anyone to, to deal with their, their mental health issues or their trauma is to let them know that they're safe first. Councillor candidate Nate Pike, what was your thoughts on firefighters not being considered frontline in terms of the was, vaccination process? I was livid about that. Um, the, it's, it, to me, it's, it's... It's a provincial concern, but it's also a part of our city. You know, it's our people. We're all together here. 
Yeah. Um, but I mean, I can tell you that, that as a paramedic, we have, especially for the higher acuity medical calls, fire, the fire department responds with us on that all the time uh, to, for anyone to suggest that, that firefighters aren't in the same level of initial risk as, as any other frontline first responder. I would argue the same thing for police, by the way. Uh, the fact that it wasn't paramedics, fire and police is, is something that I am. I'm very glad that they're getting it now is how I'll say, because <laughs> otherwise I'll, I'll get too wound up. Well, of course, but I just, I just wonder is these kind of decision-making skills who decides and who can approve to go through with these things? Like, I don't get it. It's exhausting. It's, it's chaos. It, it causes conversations that don't need to happen. Well, and this is where I would refer you back to my comment on theater. Um, the, the, the distribution of vaccines is a, a provincial jurisdiction. Uh, and unfortunately, I mean, we've seen no shortage of examples where the, the theater of things has gotten in the way of effective decision-making. I mean, the, 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 the tapes that were leaked earlier this year with Dr. Henshaw expressing her frustration with that. Uh, so, and this goes again, one of the things that, that is fundamental to my campaign is the idea that we have to, it's really easy for me or any other political candidate for that matter to sit here and go, Oh, you know what? I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be transparent. But if I don't back that up with actual action before I get elected. It's meaningless. Those are easy words to say. And that's one of the reasons why I've taken steps to demonstrate that, no, I am legitimately interested in doing politics differently. I'm legitimately interested in trying to be transparent and honest. I'm disclosing all of my donations as I receive them. Uh, and I have invited all of the candidates in Ward 3 to do the same, because I think that particularly with the changes to the finance laws that we've seen, it's incumbent on anyone running for political office to be very clear what their allegiances are, to whom they owe political favors, and, and who's funding their campaign. My campaign is in almost entire, well, no, it is entirely funded by small donations from people who are seeing what I'm trying to do. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. And the idea that other candidates or anybody will only disclose who gave them money and how much after the election that doesn't do anything to forward democracy. That doesn't do anything to, to raise the bar. It's an easy thing that any of us can do, but to choose not to is to only do so for political expediency. And I think that that's, again, now we're back to the problem of, of, of politics before governance, politics before what's right for the, this, the constituents of Ward 3 and Calgary at large. Do you think the city hall or the incoming city hall council is going to be as toxic as it has been in the past? Or is there going to be certain thresholds put in place where people have had enough? You know, we're, we're all human beings. This past year has not been easy for any of us. I think people are, are at the point, tipping point. Yeah. I think that that's really going to depend on uh, not just the, the council, but I, I would also argue that it's going to depend largely on the bravery of the voters. Um, if, if candidates who are elected are the ones who do the best theater uh, and they put on the best show and they are the most polarizing, uh, then, yeah, I think we'll have the same problems that we have right now. But if, if 
People who are running for office are willing to step up and demonstrate through action, not just words, the ideals that they're committed to, then I think that we can have an amazing city council. I, I look across the city at, at people who are running in other wards and I can pick out like, oh, if, if they get in, this is going to be awesome. Um, not because they align with my political viewpoints, but because they're people who are open to collaboration. They're people who are open to conversation. They're people who have a demonstrated commitment to their, their communities, which I personally think is critically important. It's one of the reasons why I decided to run. Um, and I, th those are the people that we need at the table. The people who are, are, are showing up and they're, they're doing the theater they're not doing the work. They haven't done the work in their communities. I mean, I've lived in Ward 3 for, like I said, I think 12 years now. Um, I have volunteered uh, for countless organizations. Um, I was part of the advocacy for the high school. Uh, I've sat on the board for the Northern Hills Community Association. I mean, I could go on and list, but it would self, sound self-congratulatory at a certain point if it hasn't already. Um, that's what we need. When we have people who just want the the prestige and the ego of, of being a city councilor, because look at what a big deal I am, uh, the work doesn't get done. Why is this election so important to Calgarians and the future of our city? So many reasons. <laughs> How much time do you have? Um, the I mean, there's there's two really obvious ones. Um, and, and that's the economic downturn and that's COVID. Uh, we have never been in such a vulnerable position before. Uh, we, we haven't had a, a pandemic of this magnitude in, I would argue, 99% of our lifetimes. And when you combine that with the fact that we are seeing an economic paradigm shift in Calgary, um, if, if we only elect people who are, are committed to clinging to the past. And if we only elect people who are, are not looking for how Calgary can be that vibrant hub to live and work in uh, and, and can be an example globally, if, if we don't have that kind of commitment from the people that are running, we're going to be in a whole lot of trouble. I mean, I look at cities like Detroit uh, or Michigan, and we are not far from that. We are on the precipice. Uh, and it's, it's not anybody's fault. Uh, it's, it's, it's circumstance. The economy changed. That's the reality. We have COVID. That's the reality. So the question is, are we going to move forward uh, or are we going to try to cling to the past? And on that note, I want to say that I absolutely believe uh, in, in the city uh, and its capacity to move forward. I mentioned earlier, I'm a paramedic um, and I had the privilege of being one of the very first first responders that responded in 2013 to the floods. Uh, and the compassion and the resilience and the strength of character that this city demonstrated in 2013 um, should be considered as an example to the world. Uh, I, I've seen the same thing even, I mean, when, when the Fort Mac fires happened, um, I was deployed up there as well. And one of the biggest logistical problems that we had during the Fort Mac fires was the fact that people were donating so much stuff. We didn't have anywhere to put it. That speaks to the character of, of, 
who the people in this province, in this city are. And I think that it's really, really easy to get distracted from that with these, these shiny political footballs that people keep throwing up into the air, but it doesn't fundamentally change who we are. And I think that we need to have people in positions who believe in that. Um, to it blunt, what do you bring to your ward that your competitors don't? Um, well, I'll, I don't want to talk about what my competitors do or don't, um, but I'll talk about what I, I know. Because I ask everyone that same question, they just say it's kind of what they want to do uh, based on what how they're different than their competitors is what everyone's been asked. Certain questions. Okay, like that's that. fair. Um, I think the biggest things that that I bring, uh, I, like I said earlier, I have a demonstrated history in the community. Um, I have I have put the work in, uh, and I think that that's. That's really, really important. There's always people who pop up during election cycles who, who say, well, you should vote for me because reasons. Um, but I think that community is fundamentally what we need to return to. Uh, and I think the people who appreciate and value that are the people that Calgarians across the city should be electing. Um, and then the other big thing is, is, like I said earlier, I am not just talking about being honest. I'm not just talking about being transparent. I'm doing everything that I can think of to demonstrate that. Um, and I, I refer back to my, my donations disclosure. Uh, that's not anything that any of the other candidates are doing. Um, and I think that that's, I would love nothing more than to have that talking point taken away from me. I would love nothing more than for every candidate who's running in Ward 3 to go, yeah, you know what? The, the voters in Ward 3, the voters of Calgary deserve to have transparency from their elected officials. That would, and if, if, if I get to talk about other stuff, that'd be great. Um, but here we are. Are you a big believer in small businesses? Yes, absolutely. Uh, small, small businesses are the, the backbone and the economic engine of our economy. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, I mean, I've, we can talk about the restrictions if you want, uh, sure. to get, I mean, it was hard know. yesterday. I know a lot of my friends that own restaurants and bars, uh, specifically that industry. And, you know, they spend all this money on patios, extending the patios, 10, $15,000 and they're closed again. This is why, again, I go back to when we have elected officials who are interested in political expediency and theater, everybody suffers. Um, I have had conversations over the last couple of weeks with people who are profoundly anti-restriction, anti-mask, and even they are saying, can we please just do a circuit breaker and be done with this so we can get back to our lives? Um, that's, I don't know why we didn't do it earlier, but I do know for sure that as you talked about with your with your friends who are are working in, in small businesses and trying to to make a go in the restaurant industry there's lots of other industries physical fitness there's tons that have been put on this yo-yo roller coaster ride because we keep doing these half measures and unfortunately i think that feeds into a lot of the 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 fear-based conspiracy theories that exist out there because we're just dragging this thing out longer and longer it is a source of unending frustration for me because I have family who live in Australia and New Zealand and I get to see what they post on, on Facebook. Uh, and they're having a great time. Nate, and, well, look at this, you know, a few weeks ago, they should have just completely shut everything down. They keep the schools open and then they close them. Oh, two weeks. Okay, guys, 
We're going to extend another two weeks. He said that yesterday. Oh, another two weeks. Stop lying. Moms and dads need a plan. If this is going to be the case, finish the school year off. What's the big deal here? Why do we keep just doing this? It's yeah. like, we all know it's a joke now. Like, we can't trust you guys because you keep saying two weeks. We know it. You're going to say it again. Just be honest. And I think that's what people are getting frustrated about. If we're all in this together, as they say, then literally show it, prove it, you know? And that's, I mean, yeah. Let me people be clear. Are frustrated. Sorry, Nate, just to finish up, people are frustrated yeah. that these individuals have a job and they're the ones making the decisions for others not to have some. So, no, that doesn't yeah. make sense. And, and again, it's nobody's fault. COVID's nobody's fault. COVID is nobody's fault, but the, the response. And I, I do believe it's real. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I was just going to say, like, to be clear, COVID is, I, I, I have. Unfortunately, I have on a, on a daily basis, I treat COVID patients. Um, oh, so it is real. Oh, yeah, it's real. There's, there's no people, question. You know how you always hear there's always two sides to and where to stand. I'm no, like, no. I've oh, watched people die from this. It's real. And anybody who wants to say that it's not real, I understand that they're coming from a place of fear. I understand they're coming from a place of frustration. But when you watch another human being take the last breath of their life because of this disease, and I don't know how anyone can can deny that it's real. It's like, don't even get me started. <laughs> well, you see it. And the other thing I got to take my hat off for you. I mean, I've heard in your industry, not many people last an X amount of years because of the PTSD and uh, paramedics and EMS. Is that yep. true? Absolutely. I mean, the median, the median career length for somebody in EMS is about five years. Uh, I'm fortunate that, that I've been doing it for about 12 years now. Um, uh, and I have some, some, I would like to think healthy coping mechanisms that, that, that keep me from, and I have an incredibly supportive family uh, that, that keep me from getting into too much trouble. Um, but it is, I can say that certainly over the last year, uh, the, the number of people who have for their own, uh, well-being made choices to, to do different things, um, is, is definitely gone up. Uh, and I think we've seen that across the healthcare system. Um, but for, I have said in other places and I'll say it here for anyone who doesn't believe in the severity of, of COVID, uh, and anyone who doesn't believe in how incredibly tragic its impact is, I would invite you to talk to some ICU nurses. Um, I've, I've said for a while now that I think maybe instead of penalties for like financial penalties, volunteer 12 hours in an ICU. Um, because once you see this thing up close, and fortunately there's a lot of people who haven't had to see it up close yet, which I think is part of the reason why there's exists still some skepticism. Well, I get individuals, you know, you see it all over the internet, especially here in Alberta. Um, the ICUs are empty. The, the, apparently there's some new stat out saying there's nobody really in the hospitals. I know a friend that's a nurse there. She's saying it's so slow. She's like going to walk her dog. Well, here's what my question is. What unit does she work on? Uh, because, yeah, in some of like if we're talking about a day surge unit, for sure things have slowed down because they've had to shut down procedures. 
But when we're talking about, you take a look at what the ICU capacities are in most hospitals in Calgary, and we're doubling up patients in rooms, according to, to things that I've, I, I, you know, I've seen ICU doctors on social media. There's a couple who have been extremely effective communicators throughout this entire thing. And they're talking about the fact that they have in an ICU room that's supposed to have one patient, there's now two. And so when we're talking about expanding our ICU capacity, well, sure, but is it in the best interests of the patient? Is it in the best interests of the, 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 the staff and the healthcare system? I would argue no. Um, but that's, again, that's a reality that I, I, I think has not been communicated. Um, I would love, I think that- Has suicide gone up as no, well? No, Okay. The statistics on that are quite clear. Okay. Um, in regards to the suicide rate, we've actually seen a, a decrease. And I think that there- really? Yeah. Interesting. And, and that's been reported quite accurately, um, but unfortunately, it doesn't fit the narrative of some people who are looking to, to I mean, the opioids uh, deaths have gone through the roof. Um, and there's a variety of different factors in, involved in that, a lot of which have to do with crop supply. Um, but the, the suicide numbers have actually come down significantly. Um, and I think that that's an important part of the conversation because I think some of the things that have been done have been um, effective in mitigating a lot of the things that can potentially drive people to, to that. Nate, as a paramedic, can you tell Calgarians how severe COVID-19 is or what you have felt as a person dealing with something like this, seeing people go through all this? It's not easy. Here's, here's what I would say. Seen it. Yeah. Um, I have been fortunate to do some pretty intense things uh, in my career. Um, I, I, I work with, with a, a public safety unit with the Calgary Police Service, and the training that they uh, have let me do has been, <laughs> to, to call it intense would be a gross understatement. Um, it, it is some of the most ridiculous, in a good way, things that I've ever had the privilege to do. Uh, they, they don't mess around with their training. Um, I, like I said, I responded to the, the floods. Uh, when I was up in Fort Mac, uh, there was a point where the, the fire turned around um, and we had to evacuate. And I learned what the term firebrand was. Uh, and it's literally when burning stuff falls out of the sky. Um, cool. I, I go to cardiac arrests on a regular basis. I go to, I have had to respond to pediatric cardiac arrests. Um, so given the, all of that, when I say COVID scares me, I don't know what else to say. Thank you, Nate.